when I have a really bright idea and I want to commit it to memory, I'm like, make a short poem about it and then revisit that later. Um, and those are the kind of breadcrumbs I'm leaving for myself these days. That was Hakeem Bellamy. Real treat this week on the Creative Habits Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoy the show as we continue our exploration into creative habits. Is it the aha moment or is it the habit? So my name is Hakeem Bellamy. I am the uh, inaugural poet laureate of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I am also an actor, uh, an activist or organizer. Um, I'm a father. I am an actor. I'm a musician and, uh, and oftentimes wear the hat of educator. Uh, I like to say I like to stimulate creative dialogue within communities through art. So uh, I, through my LLC Beyond Poetry, I partner with other groups to create uh, moments, moments of dialogue, moments of interaction. Sometimes that happens when I'm on stage. Sometimes it takes a longer form. But uh, that's what I do. Nice, nice. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate you being on here. And and so all that all that comes together in in the content that you've you create regularly. So what are you working on recently? Man, so right now the coolest thing I'm doing is uh, as a matter of fact, tomorrow I go into the third juvenile detention center uh, around the state. I'll be in Roswell tomorrow. I've already been to Taos Juvenile Detention Center and Bernalillo County Juvenile Detention Center. And I'm working with um, the New Mexico Association of Counties to develop a model project for something that they call PREA, uh, P-R-E-A, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And so they're developing a curriculum that's for new, I call them students as opposed to inmates, but new students who are admitted to a facility as well as for staff that work in a facility around sexual misconduct in juvenile detention centers. So PREA, uh, again, I think I said it already, is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And through creative programming, through stimulated dialogue, through having students kind of write, essentially, um, about experiences that may not be theirs, but experience that they've known about or heard or see or kind of like that idea, like, I don't have a drinking problem, but my friend has a drinking problem, that kind of idea. And uh, we walk them through exercises just so that when uh, the situation arises, if they're lucky, it will never arise. But when a situation arises where them or someone they know is a victim, they will have given it some thought beforehand, actually thought about what they would do if they were in that situation. And, um, and hopefully that leads to uh, a change, a transformed culture inside juvenile detention centers. So... That whole project is like they could have went to clinicians, they could have went to therapists, they could have went to counselors, and they came to a poet. I have no idea what they were thinking, but uh, it's been going pretty well, and we've been having some really rich dialogue, and uh, as is always I find is the case is that the students know more about the topic than we think, and that's from like foreign policy to, <laughs> to pop music. Like They know more than we think they know, and so those discussions have just been enlightening. And uh, yeah, and at, and at the end of the day, we're, we're developing a pilot video project that will actually be something that all admitted staff and admitted students would have to watch at every juvenile detention center, uh, hopefully around the country. It's a model. We're a model site. So if we do our thing properly, um, it's a video series that people would have to watch and kind of sign off on before they worked in a facility or were admitted. So 
Nice. So yeah, that wow, that's pretty powerful. There's a lot of questions that come to mind. But um, so do you you develop the process that they go through, and is is writing a core part of that? You mentioned that in the beginning. Writing is a core part, and in, in is is my practice pretty much in life. I try to never. I try to never ask people to do something that I haven't done or wouldn't do myself. So part of the process was also me commissioning a poem uh, about sexual misconduct. So uh, as you can imagine, it's, it's not necessarily a polite conversation topic. And, and it's like not necessarily things that people like to talk about. Not, people don't gather around the water cooler and say, hey, let's talk about sexual misconduct in the workplace. So, you know, like my task was like, how do I write something that's empathic and how do I write something that is less about the technical jargon and what is harassment and all these things that you would find in a manual because they have to read a manual too so they're going to do that part but something that's a little bit more visceral something that like actually you know tugs at the heart and the mind a little bit and says this is uh, this is an idea of what these people might be going through whether it's the perpetrator or the victim right and and putting together a piece of art that uh, is engaging, that's more engaging than watching a boring instructional video. And so that's why they contracted with me. And so I, I wrote the poem and I, I went through my normal kind of creative process of writing a poem where I have to, where I have to do lots of research and kind of find a unique angle. And, uh, and I think I did, I think I did a good job. They liked it. So we recorded that. And then I go into these workshops with students and try to get them to create content around it and, uh, and you know, lead by example. So, so the, I mean, because the whole idea of poetry reaching some of these people, it, it seems almost like on the face of it, it would be like, well, that's not going to, I mean, how is a poem going to, how right. is the power of that poem going to really reach them? Not only reach them, but also reach in and engage them enough so that they do the same thing. And sure. that must, that, that ability of yours to really reach them uh, must be, I mean, that's, that's powerful. What, 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 uh, what part of that magic enabled you to connect in that way? You know, it's, it's interesting because th like their whole curriculum part is like, how do they just, how do they double down on terms? How do they double down on like content and theory? A lot of it's repetitive. Cause you know, the more we repeat things, uh, ideally, the, the more we remember them. And what I, what I appreciated is that they were willing to, to kind of go out on the limb and say, Hey, we've had manuals on this kind of stuff, you know, since time immemorial, and the problem has not, you know, ceased to exist. So we need to do something different, right? We need to try something different to see if we can engage people um, in a different way. And, you know, for me, like I've worked in retail, I've worked in restaurants, and it's like, you know, you, whenever you start a new job, you have to like read a binder full of stuff and then sign off and say you read it. And you never really read it. You just nah. kind of sign off, like, yeah, whatever. Like it's in a handbook, whatever. If something happens, if I slip and fall in the workplace, I'll go back to the handbook, but it's not like I'm actually going to read this. And so this is just a way to make it to, to make it more engaging and to make people kind of stop and go, hey, that was cool. Oh, wait, they tricked me. They actually stuffed some actual instruction <laughs> it's in there, you know. So it's more like edutainment in a way, right? It's like, how do you, uh, how do you get people to kind of stop for a second and, and spectacle and then when they walk away from it, they've actually learned something. You kind of snuck some vitamins in with the peanut butter, you know? So Yeah. Yeah. Then so you teach them a bit of writing habit uh, to kind of pull out their emotions, pull out some of the, what they've gone through. And what type of habits do you kind of wrap around to make it easier for them to do that? 
Oh, uh, well, just, you know, I, you know, I'm working with teenagers, right? When I'm in this, when, in, when I'm in these facilities in particular, I've been in adult detention centers as well. Um, and most people have a practice of collecting or gathering their thoughts already. Um, sometimes it's not as intentional or organized, but especially in this age of social media, people have a way of documenting their lives, whether they do it through pictures on a web, on a Facebook page, or um, some people do it through journaling. Um, a lot more people than you think actually do it through journaling and writing. And I'm always surprised when I, when I ask my initial question, like who in here, you know, it writes, you know, any way, shape or form. And you usually get a lot of hands, especially inside when there's not a lot of options for entertainment, right? You get, you get a lot of students that are already in the practice of writing. And so what I'm trying to offer them more is a connection. So it's like you're kind of doing this thing and maybe you're writing things that are healthy. Maybe you're writing things that are not healthy, um, even though I'd argue that all writing can be healthy and cathartic, even if they're writing about the bad stuff, right? But how do we connect this actually to something that's useful in your life right now? Right? How do we connect it to something functional? Everybody's not going to grow up and be a poet. Everybody's not going to grow up and write for television or stage or screen. But this can be useful to you in other ways, right? It can help you with job interviews. And, and you know, we always try to focus on what they're going to do when they get out, right? And so that, that, that makes it optimistic. And so I try to really make that connection and connect the dots between the practice maybe they've already, they've already been engaged in um, and then how it can actually be useful and I just try to sell them on continuing that. I try to sell them on continuing that and fleshing that out. I find a lot of us, when we get to adulthood, uh, we stop keeping journals. We stop doing things that were really good for us, that were really therapeutic for us because we have to work and because we're always busy. But yet we always find time to watch American Idol. So how do we substitute those habits that really sustained us in the past into adulthood? And, and the main thing for me with adults is like imagination. Like somewhere in those young to late 20s, we lose, we lose uh, our infatuation with imagination and it kind of goes away. So how do we keep stimulating that? So you bring that imagination back. You bring them back to their, that core experience. How's that been going? It's been going well. You know, right now after three sites or tomorrow will be the third site, uh, they're, they're in the process of across the four sites writing a one act in the first, at the first site in Taos, I had them sit down and we kind of brainstormed a situation or scenario. And then we did character sketches of the characters we were going to have involved. And then we kind of did a what would you do if you were in this situation. And then when we moved to Bernalillo, we already had our kind of uh, our, our narrative diagram. We already had like our uh, opening, our setting, our rising action, our climax. We had all that figured out for our script. But we needed actual dialogue now. So at the second workshop in Bernalillo, we uh, wrote letters. We, we put ourselves in the shoes of the perpetrator writing a letter to the victim posthumously after death when they can kind of see everything that's happened and, uh, and really get in the mind of someone who would commit uh, a, 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 an offense like that really to kind of humanize them, to humanize the perpetrator and the victim and say it's not always as cut and dry as it appears in the movies um, sometimes it's just somebody who made a bad decision or somebody who's sick and all these other things come into play. And so how do we, how do we really, uh, handle that through, you know, a narrative essay that, that, that is essentially a poem. It's a poem in a letter, in a letter format. Right. And then, uh, and then the next step we're going to be the next place is going to be writing the inverse letter. And then finally, um, trying to put it all together. So it, it is a lot of, uh, projection, they're pretending to be these people, even though lots of them have actually been in or know someone in the situation. But it gives them a little level of separation. It makes it easier for them to do 
and and share with other teenagers because they, you know, we were all teenagers. We really, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult for that matter, you really care what, what your peers think. So uh, we try to make it safe for them to do that, you know. And, and, you've, and, and the group really helps, you find they come together and really help each other in, in that yeah. process thing. Yeah, really, they're really supportive. They're really supportive of each other. And, you know, a lot of that is just the relationships they've already built for however long they've been in there already. You, you but, must, yeah, you must get into some sticky moments when you really you're getting into the grit of it and having to, you know, kind of burn through that. Uh, it must be some interesting moments. Yeah, it's, it's it's. I mean, I'm learning something every day. I'm yeah. in there. I'm learning. I'm learning about my myself and and uh, what my you know healthy and unhealthy experiences were in the past as well and 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 needing to share that with them because they're not going to be open or vulnerable with me until I'm open or vulnerable with them so it's a yeah man it's it's exhausting <laughs> so like it's like mentally physically and spiritually exhausting but the funny part is that when I leave there you'd think I'd be like drained in and and I'm actually like on like a runner's high when I leave there cuz it's like yeah you know you've just been talking about the the underbelly of of mankind and humanity for about four and a half hours inside a correctional facility that has its own kind of energy and it's like man i want to go on a five mile run and have a beer at the same time so (laughs) (laughs) no doubt it it's uh, do you find the uh that process then uh, have you I imagine that's consuming you and everything that you're doing but do you have moments where you're creating um you know, poetry from this for yourself that kind of is influenced by all of this and, or, or are you waiting and that happens after you're done with, with this? It kind of happens after. That's a great question. I, you know, I feel like for me, it definitely happens after when I'm kind of processing everything, you know, in hindsight, um, it just starts to, I mean, it's, it's, it's cooking right now, right? It's simmering right now, but, uh, you know, the little buzzer goes off and it's done a little bit later. Yeah. You know, um, you take take notes along the way so you get that because you've got that rawness when you're there, and, right? And so you know not to lose that uh, over time, just because there is that time buffer that will happen. But do you somehow get that down into a place so you can reconnect with it later? Um, well, there, you know, I'm i most of my time is spent documenting their work, but mm-hmm. I do journal. I'm I'm a like you know avid chronic journaler. So a lot of it these days, it's weird, is that I've, I've been in this kind of a haiku fetish. So a lot of how I'm capturing little bits of inspiration in the moment is in 17 syllables, right? And, and they're really senru because they're not about nature. And that's, you know, the poetry nerds will, will understand. But, but, um, but like, you know, I'm, I'm really, I don't know, there, there's, a, there's an economy of language that I'm really trying to go for at this stage in my career. And so the practice of writing these really short, punchy, imagistic, powerful poems has been, uh, has been like my, my thing lately. And I'm actually, I've actually got a, a chapbook manuscript with a publisher in Minneapolis just of haiku, which is, you know, really quite the opposite of a performance poem or a slam poem, which is the school of poetry I come from, where, you know, it's, it's long form, it's super prosy, uh, not too many rules, lots of conventions, but not too many rules and what you can and can't do. And then, you know, it's like a three minute epic piece as opposed to 17 syllables, <laughs> like, you know, so that's kind of how I've been capturing when, when I have a really bright idea and I want to commit it to memory, I'm like, make a short poem about it and then revisit that later. 
Um, and those are the kind of breadcrumbs I'm leaving for myself these days. So short poetry, poetry. Yeah. So it's the, micro- the haiku. Poetry. Yeah. It, the new term is micro poetry. They even have micro. Twitter poems now. Poems right. in 140 characters or less. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the economy of it. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. and then, you know, I guess it's it's as you put it. Um, in a utility sort of way, being able to get that down to reconnect later and maybe do sure. a longer piece from it. But I mean, time time is like a poet's best friend and worst enemy in general. And that's what everybody asks me because just because I'm 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 very active in my community and uh, and I'm an active dad and I and I do lots of things. I'm I'm overcommitted like most of us are. And uh, they're always like, well, when do you find time to write? Because um, because I like to say I'm prolific, but I always like to qualify that by meaning I write a lot, but it's not all good, right? <laughs> like, you know, so, like I'm more of the machine gun approach. I, I shoot a lot of bullets and hopefully I hit something as opposed to the sniper approach where you take like 10 minutes to line up a shot and fire. Uh, it's a violent metaphor, but it's very appropriate for poets. So, so, <laughs> so, so like, I, that, that's what I, like I just, I, I write in the middle of the night. I write when I'm driving on my phone, which is not good. It's worse than texting and driving. Uh, I, I write in waiting rooms, I write like any spare moment um, I'm trying to write, you know, so. Wow. Wow. So I, I, yeah, the, the, the writing while driving. <laughs> not I do not recommend, please right. do not try that at home. Uh, uh, you know, no Creative doubt. Habits and Wyatt Christman do not endorse any of that. <laughs> do not endorse that right. So right. now you, you're an actor too. How does that play into your creative experience now? I, you know, it, it plays a role obviously with the kids you're working with, but uh, do you find a bridge between like your poetry and your acting and partly, you know, as a journalist, all that coming together, do you, do you, how does one feed the other? Do you find that happening or? Yeah, I feel like it's all poetry, you know, um, oftentimes because, uh, you know, I, I do journalism, I write. I write a music column here and I do a lot of freelance work. I do uh, essays and lots of blogging and things of that nature. And, and I have, you know, I've written a couple of plays or short plays and I just saw poetry. Like I think I approach it all from the same, the same process, you know, uh, in the beginning, it doesn't, in the beginning when it's not fully formed, it doesn't present itself necessarily yet as a poem or even as a blog entry or as an essay and then the more I like, you know, mess with the clay, it starts to appear. And then I'm like, okay, now I know what this is going to be. Now I need to figure out what to do with it, you know. So a lot of it is just um, my practice of going from idea to finished product. And uh, and if anything, I don't think I'm a, I don't think I'm a super disciplined person necessarily. But I think that if anything, there's a certain discipline about my writing. Um, and and even if the, even if the only major part of that discipline is making time for it. Um, and then, you know, my approach is often very similar. Like I'm very much a research writer. Uh, I get asked to write commission poems about things I know nothing about. And so I go back to being a journalist and I just immerse myself in, the inf- in, in homework and research until an awkward, weird or obsessive idea comes out. And I'm like, hmm, I got to write that. So. so what are those habits as a journalist? Like what what what's one, you know, kind of thing that that really you kind of leverage to make all that that research happen effectively for you uh, i'm a big documentary buff so you know I, I like to i like to watch movies that are factual i like i like nonfiction. i'm very much a nonfiction person um i'll take i'll take any occasional hunger games but give me a good you know meaty documentary about addiction and i'm there 
and maybe that's a little uh macabre <laughs> maybe i'm a little maybe i'm a little dark in that way um even though a lot of my writing is you know rather inspirational uh but i think i, I really like to be rooted in reality and so i will you know i just had to write a a, a poem for muhammad ali for the champ and i had to write it because his 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 documentary the trials of muhammad ali is touring the country, the independent film circuit. And uh, I hadn't seen that documentary yet because it, it was just coming to town. But before the screening, they wanted me to do a poem about Muhammad Ali. So I was like, hmm, let me scour the internet first and see what I can find, little clips of live footage, archival footage, and any documentaries that already exist. Uh, let me check out some movies. Let me check out some books. Let me check out some articles. And, uh, and I just keep going deeper, right? It's like just going deeper, deeper, deeper until uh, I strike oil, until something comes to the surface that, that I think is a unique approach. Like a lot of people have written about Muhammad Ali, so what am I going to add to the conversation? So I just keep digging until I find a lead, and that's, that's kind of where journalism comes in. It's, you're hunting for that lead, and once you, once you have the lead, the poem kind of writes itself. So I think for me, the, I'm, I'm really invested in a unique approach to the material, and if I can find that, I, I usually feel good about the final product. So you you look for that quirkiness mm -hmm. within what what's out there, and and you just you, you can take it once you find that quirkiness, then it's it's a matter of just um, you know expanding upon that. Yeah, expanding and and not expanding upon it, but like also like, gosh, I, I don't want to say embellish because we're not trying to go away from the track, like, it's a, but like really uh, teasing it out, right? You know teasing it out, peeling back those layers of that onion and really trying to, um, to just trying to be rich, be rich in the description of it, be rich in, uh, in, in your immersion into it. And, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes just describing the room, it's like, you're in a room, like I'm, I'm inside the champ, I'm in a room, right. You know, in a champ's brain or in a champ's heart and, uh, describe that room to me. You know, that's a writing prompt we often use. Like you're sitting in a room inside yourself, uh, what's on the walls, What's it smell like? You know, these are, and these are just like old writing prompts, but I feel like they always reinvent themselves and, and there's nothing new under the sun. So they just kind of reemerge in, in a different, if I'm doing a different project, it, it just reemerges in a different way. And, and I continue to try to take that contour approach. Nice. So you, wow, you got to do that for the champ. That got to do that. Well, I mean, not for him. I don't think he's actually seen the poem yet. But if anybody's listening to this podcast that knows the champ or his daughter, <laughs> who's also a champ, <laughs> well, let him know I got a poem for him. <laughs> so it, yeah. And how how did it go? How how? Because well, 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 it was uh, it was fairly well attended screening uh, because the documentaries kick ass and and uh, the one independent movie theater here in Albuquerque, the Guild, always brings the kind of um either thoughtful, super thoughtful, or super art house films um, to, to Albuquerque. But it was also on MLK Day. And so they had showed some Dr. King, actually a new Dr. King documentary before that. And, uh, you know, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to keep it extra black because it was Martin Luther King Day. So they showed that, and then they showed uh, the, the trials of Muhammad Ali afterwards. And it was uh, pretty well attended for a, a holiday Monday when people have to go to work on Tuesday. So... We were we were thrilled with that. People, the poem, the poem was really well received, and and um and it's always weird because I post those kind of things to my website, and you just think that they go out there into the ether, and uh, you don't know who is reading them and who's not reading them unless you know you do your little Google Analytics thing. But um, it's uh, I I did an event in Taos just a couple weeks ago, and the lady was introducing me, 
And uh, introductions are funny because you're always like, huh, I wonder what the, I wonder what bio they dug up and how uh, outdated it is. But she was uh, really on point and she actually quoted some lines from the Muhammad Ali poem. And I was like, where the heck did you find that? Because it's not really published anywhere except for online. So, you know, it's always interesting. Once you, once you put a poem out in the world, it kind of has its own life. And it's weird how, it, how you intersect with it later. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you don't even recognize it. <laughs> like, yeah, well. You're like, to... Who wrote this piece of cra- oh I wrote it okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll have to link to it when in in the show notes uh, that'd be that'd be great so you that that poetry drives everything that you do because you you have that perspective that poet's perspective and no Smart. matter if you're acting or during journalism or whatever you're doing you have that poet's perspective what keeps that fresh for you what kind of habits keep it um, kind of huh minimalistic or or have that angle because i I would think you know in acting and all all the other creative endeavors that you do i mean to come back to poetry is almost in my own mind anyway coming back to a minimalist perspective or a a economy of words as you said with your haikus but uh but how do you keep that fresh with with the stuff that you do for me really it's the work i get to do with young with young writers you know like i grew up with I grew up from a hip hop aesthetic. Like, you know, my birthday is 19, May 30th, 1978. So, you know, I'm totally in that pocket. Uh, and where I grew up, of course, in South Jersey and uh, Philadelphia area, I've, I'm in that pocket that calls themselves the hip hop generation. And uh, I, I grew up kind of with a really uh, artsy aesthetic, if you will. And even though that art didn't necessarily manifest itself with, with uh, wall canvases or paintings, it did manifest itself on walls and it manifested itself in like, you know, fashion and in my love of language and words, really like that started there. Later, I actually picked up a book or two. But in the beginning, I just wanted to put words together in an interesting way because that's what my uh, my would be heroes at the time were doing on the radio and on television. And so I always feel like I'm kind of in a way, stuck in that kind of Freudian stage of development. <laughs> and I'm always trying to impress my peers, but I still think all my peers are 16, 17, 18-year-olds, right? And so uh, uh, when I go into a classroom and it, the, their work is really raw, like it's not necessarily polished. It's not, it's not like necessarily who I'm reading now when I'm reading Thomas Sayer Ellis or when, when I'm reading uh, the U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethewey. Um, you know, technically, it's not on that level, of course, but that seed that they've planted is so unique and so uh, and so infused with energy and innovation and uh, intersubjectivity and intersectionality, like just something brand new. And when I when I interact with that kind of on a daily, weekly basis, it always it reminds me to, to stay fresh and it reminds me to keep my writing uh, fresh and young and, and keep that imaginative aspect that I was talking about earlier in it. Um, always saying, how can we trick this out? How can we make this even crazier? What if we did this? What if this happened? And, you know, and and sometimes there's a framework for that. Sometimes there's actually like a precedent set and I can connect them to well, hey, this poet over here is kind of doing this thing in, in, in his work. You should check this poet out. And sometimes it's not, or, or we just haven't found it yet. And we're like, let's just see how crazy, how far we could take this thing. And, uh, and it's like a rubber band. It's a muscle. So if I stretch it way out the bounds of what can be considered acceptable poetry, uh, when it snaps back, it's actually a little bit more flexible and, and even stronger in a way, like a, like a muscle. Like a muscle is stronger when you stretch it. So, Nice. 
So, so uh, you mentioned in the beginning that uh, community, and just now with with the kids you're working with, but also within the place that you live, that community feeds um, a lot of what you do or uh, fuels you. And can you describe how that kind of fits into your, uh, you know, regular creative practices or creative habits or? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, that's all about frequency. You know, I, I am, I'm totally a, a, a community organizer groupie. Uh, I, I always am plugged into like the causes in my community and in, in, in a political way, but, but mainly in a, in a kind of real people, grassroots narrative story based telling tell, excuse me narrative storytelling based way um where we want to just make sure that the voices and stories and experiences of regular people are validated and seen and accounted for in you know local politics state politics or whatever and what have you uh, national politics even so you know i'm i'm involved in a lot of that work and because of my involvement in a lot of that work i'm often asked to, hey we're doing this uh uh, ERA, Equal Rights Amendment Rally, would you do uh, present some poems in solidarity with the, with the Sisterhood of Women? Or we're doing this work with the LGBTQI queer community, would you mind sharing some work that you know, speaks to the theme? And, and as poet laureate, you get asked to write a lot of ceremonial poems. And uh, I always say I'm the poet laureate for the entire city. So uh, at any given time, um, I'm at an event then they're asking me to commission a poem for like the Albuquerque Rose Society. And I'm not particularly a green thumb. And I didn't really know much about plants before I wrote that poem. But guess what? I know a whole lot about roses now <laughs> I was to put something together for them. So, you know, um, so, you know, in that way, it's just like the, the, the connection to the community puts me in situations where I'm writing about things that I would have never written about on my own. I would have never sat at home and said, hey, I want to write a rose poem. So being connected to this group and this organization and I'm saying, hey, we want the poet laureate to come to our event and present some poetry and, you know, we'll pay you a little extra money if you write one about roses just for us. And I'm like, sure. I like the challenge of it, you know. So. Wow. Nice. I love how you just jump in. You know, I love it. It's just uh, you almost have to like this no fear factor. Uh, going on yeah. there, you know that that's that backfires sometimes for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah you know it's like i think that you know we just finished the process for selecting uh my successor the second poet laureate of albuquerque and you know i've had lots of conversation with poets that i was you know you know we we, we i don't act i'm not actually part of the selection committee so uh which is nice because we get to have a little bit of separation between us and the people who decide who the the next poet laureate is going to be, but you know, uh, I've had conversations with poets who were considering it and poets who weren't considering it that I really wanted to consider it. And in those conversations, you know, sometimes people would express a little bit of intimidation at the idea of number one, the time commitment, but number two is, well, I don't know if I could just write poems on demand. I don't know if I could just come up with a poem on the spot for, you know, uh, the, the, the Mexican delegation coming up to, to Albuquerque for the day. Like, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can produce like that. Right. Cause people write differently. Some people, um, some people really just let the muse kind of check in and check out when, when it does. But, uh, I've always been of the opinion that you can, um, you can create a practice where you're not like stuck with writer's block. You can, you can increase, the opportunity and create the environment for inspiration through your practices and your habits. And, uh, 
and mainly because I come from a hip hop aesthetic. So where where freestyling and being able to come up with something off the cuff is valued, and it's something that's practiced. Um, and then people are like, "How do you practice something that's supposed to be off the cuff?" Well, yeah, you can't you can't come to a freestyle battle with a written rap. I mean, that's there's not a lot of rules in hip hop, but that's one of the main rules. Is like you got to keep it real. You got to be authentic. You can't you can't fake it. So if you're freestyling, it really needs to be something that's happening in the moment. You need to connect to some energy and be able to kind of ride that wave and coast that wave. And uh, and I approach my writing like that because that's kind of how I was raised. And uh, and I'm like, you can't practice for what's going to happen, but just like an athlete practices all week. They don't know what's going to happen in the game. You never know what's going to happen in the game, but you practice so that you're prepared for whatever happens in the game. And if you develop your practice, then you're going to be ready to be spontaneous when the time comes, if that's what you're practicing, you know. Do you, do you find, yeah, and that's beautiful because you've, you've got this ability to just feed an energy that's existing with your audience. You're almost co-creating in that. In that you're respect. co-creating. That's totally it. That's you said it best. That's and that's the beauty of it. Like I, I wouldn't have written it without them, and they wouldn't have written it without me. So we're co-creating. Nice. Yeah. So what did you find yourself? You know, because you've got those moves. An athlete, they go out and play because you were making that parallel. So they go out and they've they've done these different moves, and when they go into the game, they're kind of, you know, they're off the cuff, but they also fall into a certain move. You know. Right. Um, right. Do you find yourself doing like, something similar at some like points? A, like a flow. Absolutely. It's like a flow. Like, you know, uh, you, you practice and practice, practice so that when it happens in the game, it's reflexive so that you right. don't have to think about it. Right. And, and, and it really like, you know, it, it can be said differently for me. It can also be said like there's if, if, if let me get real new agey for a second. If there's this kind of universal current this energy you can tap into. And let's say that that energy is called inspiration just for the sake of argument. And you could just like certain people know how to plug into that and tap that at will. Certain people have developed a practice where whenever they need to tap into the creative energy of the universe, they can just do it. Then there's the rest of us, the most of us who kind of wait for it to strike. And I just, just feel really blessed and lucky when it does. But it's it's really uh, mercurial to us. We just we can't we can't know and we can't predict it, and uh, and I and I think that the people who are really prolific, the people who create at a high volume, at a high quality for a long period of time, all they've done is they've really perfected a way for them to 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 tap. They've perfected their method or their their path their pathway to being able to tap that kind of energy at will and and say, hey, I can plug into that. Um, I could control when I want to plug into that and when I want to unplug from that while the large, the, the larger place of the pie, the larger population of writers or whatever creators kind of, um, haven't mastered that yet, you know? So, wow. yeah, it's a good and I don't know, and I don't think I have, but I just think, but I know that I'm trying to, I know that I'm, I'm trying to develop a practice to where I can, you know, uh, where I can fill all the orders. If someone comes to me and says, Hey, we're looking for this. Can you do that? I want to be able to say yes. Or say, you know what, I'll, I can try, and I'm at least confident enough to say, yes, I'll try, you know? So. Yeah, and you've, you, you know you rely upon that research, that, but combining that research with your own history and ability to reflect what you see and draw out those particular, you know, idiosyncrasies and weird stuff to a place that you kind of connect with, you know, an audience. Sure, 
Yeah. Okay. So cool. So oh, okay for your hero's journey. You are you familiar with the hero's journey? Yes. Okay. Nice. So mm-hmm. can you give us kind of like um, a journey you've experienced that you know kind of has allowed you to come to the place you are at now? I would say for me, you know, and it, this this is a little bit banal, a little trite, but you know, the journey of fatherhood. Um, I'm often asked how how did having a child impact me as an artist? And uh, I, I am always very straightforward. My, my son was the most beautiful, miraculous accident that ever happened. And so I was not planning on starting a family, uh, but a family planned on starting me. And I was doing poetry before that, and I was having a great time. And we were, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a productive hobby even, you know, it was something I did on the side and made a good little second income. I got to travel. I got to feel real cool when I stepped off the stage and people cheered for me. And uh, it was feeding my ego and my personal life in that way. All of my friends and family were, were this kind of community and network of poets that uh, we would take our act on the road and go places and, and, and afforded me the opportunity to travel, which was awesome. And, I, and it was just doing the poetry was kind of doing all of this for me for, for you know, three or four years until... I found out we were going to be pregnant and my son was going to be born. And then the normal reckoning kind of happens where you're like, okay, I'm like a full-time grad student. Uh, first of all, I need to get a job, right? I need to get a, a job that's actually going to pay some money. I can't live off of student loans and, and raise a child, though, though lots of people do. Um, but I need, I need health insurance. I need all these things. So this is it. This is the moment. Like, you know, make or break. Are you going to, if you're going to continue doing this art, then um, it has to take a different level of seriousness, it needs to really be the thing that you want to do because at the end of the day, you only have so many hours and and this time is competing with time that you would be spending with your child um, or even on your studies, which is taking me extra long to finish my master's. But if you're going to do this thing and it's going to take away from these other things, it needs to be more than just you know a cool, a cool party on the weekends. It needs to be like the thing that you're going to do um, to justify it to yourself. And in that moment, uh, or a couple of moments or a couple of months, I decided that I was really going to pursue this. And, and the main reason I was going to pursue it is because, you know, when my son is older, I want, I want to be able to look him square in the eye and say, hey, you can do what you want to do. You can be what you want to be. You can follow your dreams. Look, I tried and this is how far I got, you know, as opposed to it just being hyperbole and saying, hey, you could be president one day and not really believing it. Um, so I figured, you know, I should I should show and not tell. I should lead by example if I really want him to uh, pursue his passions. And so, you know, that that all of that factored into my work ethic and and really the the passion and commitment that I have to my work is because I think in some weird future universe that that's really going to matter to him. And I don't know, maybe I'll be a hero. <laughs> so. Definitely. Definitely. So you made that leap. Uh, did because you, you had described making a leap before? Was that uh, before your son was born or after? No, that was after. So he was when I left my job, uh, the last formal job I held. Um, now I, I work for myself, but um, that was a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. So he was four when that happened, and uh, before that, I I had a couple other positions. I was a, a communications director at a nonprofit. Um, I worked for the state of New Mexico for four and a half years, um, and, and that started about the time he was born. And so, um, and then just did lots of work in media, television news, print news, radio news. And 
And all of those things I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the community organizing aspect of working at the state and, and media literacy project. I, involved, I enjoyed the media work. Like I still freelance. I still do freelance journalism. Um, so all of that stuff was really, uh, I was passionate about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I think I was put here to do. If that, as hokey as that sounds. And uh, now, this many years later, I get to do that. And get to kind of make my own schedule and say, hey, son, if you have a, a, a school party tomorrow, I can go. And I don't have to ask for time off unless I double book myself, in which case I do have to ask for time off. <laughs> like, <laughs> so you, you, you reconnect with that all the time on yeah. a daily basis because you've got that dynamic where it's like you're, if you're going to spend that time, then, yeah, it takes away from your time with your family. So your son well, and, and wow. Yeah, that's powerful. That's that's one I run into as well. And then, you know, and it's weird because it and then, you know, in other ways, parenting also allows me to, you know, and this is not true for all parents. Just like it's not it's not true that everybody likes pets. <laughs> it's not true that all babies are cute. Like, you know, what I'm saying like right. but so it's not true for every parent. But but what I can say for me is that like the the experience of watching something else grow um is 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 humbling and it forces me to observe my world in different ways like i don't just see my world through the eyes of a 35 year old young black male i see the i see the world through the eyes of a six-year-old uh, a six-year-old of mixed you know ethnicity who's like trying to figure out uh all the spanish words because he goes to a dual language charter school right you know what I'm saying and just watching this grow and and having experiences that are that are super specific to that and say hey how do I how do I capture this in a poem or in a song or in whatever I choose to write? How do I kind of capture this energy, this feeling, um, in a way that doesn't just relate to other parents? That relates to people who don't have kids. That relates to people who hate kids. Like you know, that's that's really the power of a really good poem or a really good piece. And so uh, he he becomes my guinea pig sometimes too. You know. Nice, great. So. Um... So any last ad- ad- advice for, for listeners on their own creative journeys and habits? Or um, I would say just, you know, be open to that idea that you can learn something from anything, that you can learn something from anyone. Uh, I think it's tempting in our industry as creative professionals, whether it's visual art, whether it's filmmaking, whether it's poetry, it's tempting to think you have to come off as a know-it-all. It's tempting to think you have to appear more uh astute than you are <laughs> like you know um like this a lot of this air business a lot of this uh you know you never want to show a chink in your armor you don't want to show a, a weakness um and i know i have plenty of weaknesses especially as a writer especially as a poet i love when people you know are like hey so what's your favorite blake poem i'm like i don't read a lot of blake like you know <laughs> and i'm okay with saying that <clears throat> my job as a poet is not to know every single poem on the planet you don't ask every playwright or every filmmaker to know every single movie or every singer to know every single song. And it's <clears throat> interesting how people approach us in that, in that regard. But the, the most often, um, I guess, uh, antagonistic discourse I get a lot of times is around the work I do with young and emerging writers. And when I say young, I don't just mean age. I mean like new writers, workshops with even in senior citizens' homes where people are sometimes putting poems together for the first time since they had to in eighth grade, right? And it's like their writing is not going to win, you know, any push cart prize right now. But I'm learning something from them. 
I'm learning something about how someone's brain works, how they connect ideas. And at the very least, I get to harvest and farm their experiences. Like it's experiential learning. And so, yeah, I love it when I get to work with a college honors English college course because those kids are really sharp. I love it when I get to work with universities in the English comp program because they're really sharp and they're challenging me as a, as a young writer in, in a really interesting way. But I work with kindergartners. I work with middle schoolers and I learn something from them. Like I learn, like we said earlier, how to keep my work hip and relevant and innovative and imaginative and, uh, and just don't cut that off. I think sometimes we get deep into a field, we don't, we get tunnel vision and we want to learn from people that we think are awesome and we want to do a little bit of butt kissing and a little bit of elitism and a little, <clears throat> a little bit of snobbery. And, uh, and that's cool. There's plenty of time for that. But do, don't think you can't learn something from <clears throat> your neighbor who's a carpenter. Don't think you can't learn something from uh, the old lady up the street who owns the candy store because their stories are going to make your best poems and, and it's going to be better than, you know, the enjambments and all the grammar tricks and tools you can pull out or the form of a sestina. Like their experience is going to write a better poem than any technical um, whatever, you know. Wow. So that's that my. Is, that's, that's a beautiful way to end, man. That is, that's sweet. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, I. This has yeah. been fun. I appreciate it. Yeah. I like to talk shop. I feel like I feel like a nerd, but I like to I like to do this stuff all the time. <laughs> like you know, I actually host a television show out here on New Mexico PBS called Colores, and uh, I get to interview artists who are kind of in the latter stages of their career. Like they've already established themselves, and they're they're like on cruise control now. They're already famous or known for what they do, and uh, and a lot of those artists live in New Mexico. So it's like a twelve minute, roughly a twelve minute televised interview that I do. Um, on a weekly basis. And, uh, and it's what we talk about. We talk about like, we get all heady and we're like, so where's your creative spark come from? What's the source of your inspiration? Um, why do you like colors or not like colors? And, you know, if you're not an art nerd, may, that might be like, okay, I'm going to turn to ESPN. But if you're an art nerd, that's the cool stuff. So. Oh yeah, it is. Definitely. <laughs> like, you know. That concludes our podcast here with creative habits. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned next week when we get to talk to an artist who creates contemporary art to wear. <laughs>